From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's been six months since the state's most destructive wildfire in history. We'll get the latest. Then, with critically low levels of water in the Colorado River, Colorado now has to look for more ways to use less. The impact from cuts on top of the cuts that we have already made, I think, will be exponentially greater. And more on how climate change is shaping the state. Drought is not just precipitation. It's also evaporation. So as it gets warmer across the West, even with the same amount of precipitation, you will have more drought. Also, want an escape? We asked the experts to tell us about some good books to read this summer. It recounts the story of how a young girl from Cork, Ireland, reinvents herself as a boy so that she can attend medical school. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Six months ago, today was an unusually warm, dry, and very windy day in Boulder County. A spark or flame from somewhere landed in some very dry grass that ignited, and the resulting fire spread into suburban neighborhoods in Louisville and Superior. Here's what firefighters saw. There is active flames on the ground at 2nd and Douglas now as well. We've got multiple fires along this front. Fire is just jumping the road. And fire is jumping 36 right now. Big push coming through. The Marshall Fire destroyed more than 1,100 homes and other buildings. It was the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history, and two people died. CPR climate and environment editor Joe Wirtz is here to give us an update on the investigation into the cause of the fire. Joe, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Is there anything new we should know about the investigation into the cause? Unfortunately, we don't know much more than we did shortly after the fire. Investigators have not named named a cause, have not made any arrests or filed any charges related to the Marshall Fire. The Boulder County Sheriff, uh, which is leading the investigation, is being really tight-lipped. We've requested a bunch of documents, reports, and files that they will not release to us. Um, But we do know that they've been looking into three possible causes, human activity, underground coal fires, and sparking power lines. Now, initially, investigators blamed XL Power Lines for sparking the fire right. shortly after it happened. But I understand that they walked that back. Yes, they have. They, uh, you know, walked it back pretty quickly after the fire and said those power lines were not the cause. Confusingly, the sheriff's office later clarified to CPR News that they still considered power lines a possible cause. This week, they told us there's no changes in the investigation. It still appears that power lines are being investigated as a potential cause. And power lines have uh, sparked some major fires in the U.S. in the past. Yep, that's right. Uh, Notable major fires in California come to mind, like the Camp Fire. That was the state's deadliest fire. It killed 85 people, sparked uh, by power equipment run by the utility out there. Um, You know, power lines have sparked fires here in Colorado as well. Mm. Um, And there are certainly some indications that folks in Colorado are worrying more and more about the possibility that power lines could spark wildfires. 
State regulators are asking utilities more about it. And last week, there was an HOA near Castle Rock that sued Excel over three small wildfires that it says were sparked by utility equipment in recent years. Investigators searched a property owned by 12 tribes. It's a religious sect. Do you know what they found there? We don't know what they found there. Investigators won't tell us, and records of that search are still sealed. We do know that fire crews responded to a man that was burning debris on that property days, just days before the fire. Firefighters thought that fire was under control, and then they left. You know, after, you know, around the Marshall Fire, these videos circulated that purportedly showed open burning um, at that site around the time that Marshall Fire started. But you know, investigators have not confirmed the authenticity of any of that, any of those videos. You know, we did talk to a neighbor who lives right near that property, and he says he has not seen any sign of investigators out there since, you know, a couple weeks after that fire. Um, and we also don't know much more about that possibility that an ember from one of these underground coal fires had anything to do with it. You know, coal mining was a big deal in that area, you know, back in the day. And there, there's still these underground mines that, um, you know, burn a little bit underground. Um, and uh, they can spontaneously ignite and, and they have caused fires, but we just don't know more, much more about that. So investigators haven't named a cause. Have they learned any lessons from the fire? They have. Uh, the Marshall Fire was incredibly destructive. Like we said, two people died, and it certainly could have been a lot deadlier given how fast it moved and where it was. You know, it was in a really populated part of the Denver uh, of the Denver Metro. But officials recently and, and qu- quietly, I might add, released this thing called an after-action analysis uh, that basically looked at what worked and what didn't and what things they could improve. They outlined a bunch of areas that they could fix. Um, some of it is things like fixing communications, making sure responders had the right radios, right radio frequencies. You know, cell, cell phone towers got really jammed up during that emergency and, and, and it made it hard to communicate. Um, it, it also made it hard to get for people to get emergency alerts. So they're looking at how to improve all that, improve the alert system, make evacuations easier. They also, you know, identified that they need to make changes to how some of those open spaces where that fire started, how those open spaces are managed, um, you know, make them less dangerous, less likely to be a, a fertile area where a fire like the Marshall Fire can spark and, and, and really pick up spe- steam. And Joe, before I let you go, I want to ask you about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that was just handed down this morning about the Environmental Protection Agency's authority. Tell us about that. Yeah, it just just came down. So, um, you know, look, this this is a, a big deal. It's it's complex, but it is uh, pretty impactful. The ruling centers on this Obama era climate change rule that had to do with power plants. That rule is not even active anymore. Right. It's been replaced by other rules and the, and the judges have knocked down parts of that. Um, but the court's, Supreme Court's ruling today is a lot broader than just that rule. It, it, it squashes the regulatory ability of the EPA to use the Clean Air Act to set carbon limits in states. And it gives the EPA just a, a much narrower set of tools to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, it, it basically means that EPA regulations can't be as responsive and adaptable to climate change and setting limits on, on carbon the way it's been used um, we're not quite sure yet what the impacts are in Colorado. We just got the ruling, so we're making calls right now. Um, but the SCOTUS ruling basically says if the U.S. wants these types of transformative climate change regulations on greenhouse gas emissions, that Congress is, is, is going to have to explicitly give that power to EPA. So um, back to Congress to, to, uh, to, to 
get to work doing something. And we'll be reporting more on that. Uh, thanks, Joe. Anytime. That's Joe Wirtz, CPR's climate and environment editor. For more on the Marshall Fire recovery, including a new story about how five Boulder County residents are rebuilding six months later, head over to CPR.org. When we come back, the pressure's increasing to rethink how we use water from the Colorado River. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside, like, peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to, like, dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean-style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for ¿Quién are we? everywhere you listen. The federal government dropped a bombshell earlier this month on the states that share the Colorado River. It gave Colorado and the other states two months to come up with a plan to drastically reduce the river water they use. If they don't, the federal government said it'll step in and decide. Becky Mitchell is the commissioner of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. She represents Colorado at the planning table, and she joined us. Becky, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. More than 40 million people in the West rely on the Colorado River. It starts in the mountains of Colorado, and the system has hit really low levels. That's in part due to climate change. Now the federal government says a plan's needed soon to drastically cut down how much water's used. Walk us through how you're working with the other states to come up with a plan. And I should say those states include New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Arizona, California, and Nevada. Colorado is very focused on the upper basin states, which include New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. So our work is a lot focused on working with our comrades in the other upper basin states, along with working in the um, with the lower basin states of Arizona, uh, Nevada, and California. We've been focusing on what is the most effective things that we can do for the health of the basin. And that is really to to live within the means of the river. As an example of that, last year, those upper basin states used about 25% less Colorado River water than we used in 2020. The big concerns right now are Lake Powell and Lake Mead. They're the two largest reservoirs in the U.S. and water levels are getting so low that the hydropower turbines are in danger of not being able to generate power for millions of people. Colorado actually doesn't use any of that water and doesn't use much of the hydropower. So I wonder, is it fair to expect Colorado to cut its use to keep water in these particular reservoirs? I think being included in those long-term issues is going to be important. Is it fair? I think we're all going to have to cut our uses. But when we talk about how this occurred, we really have to focus on how we are going to resolve that. And that is focused on the lower basin states of Arizona, California, and Nevada. They are the largest water users in the Colorado River Basin. So just to put a little bit of perspective on that, we use about 3.5 million acre feet in the four upper basin states. They've used closer to 10 million acre feet of Colorado River water. So what you're saying is these lower basin states are really using way more of the water than the upper basin states. 
That's exactly right. But what we're also saying is they're using more than Mother Nature provides. So you feel the lower basin states have a greater responsibility in all of this. Is that right? I I definitely feel that way. Yes, because that's where the majority of the use is occurring. The assistant secretary at the Department of the Interior said the states need to act as one Colorado River basin. She expects a list from each state outlining which water cuts can be made. What cuts are on Colorado's list right now? There has been significant ongoing water conservation taking place already. And I think things like uh, direct potable reuse, uh, water efficient technology for agriculture, more water wise landscaping. There's the turf replacement bill that passed last session, and that really directs the Water Conservation Board to establish a new program that focuses on incentivizing replacement of turf with better or more water-wise landscaping. And so ripping out things like uh, unnecessary grass and and putting in things that, that take less water. The message that you're getting from the federal government is that whatever we've done and what other states have done to cut water isn't enough yet. So the question is, if the cuts aren't working, how do we figure out more cuts? I think we're going to have to look at places we have not looked before or have been uncomfortable looking at before. Things like agriculture, we really have to think about if we cut from agriculture, what is what are the unintended consequences from that? If we cut from some sort of um, industry, what are the consequences from that? And we may have to be open to, to dealing with what those consequences are. Hmm. The federal government wants the Colorado River states to cut their usage down by two to four million acre feet each year. And that's a massive amount of water. Just for context, every year the state of Arizona uses 2.8 million acre feet of Colorado River water. Um, You have just 60 days to create this plan. How much water, how much more water does Colorado need to cut? I think when we talk about what's already been cut, and then when we talk about the proportion of um, where the uses are, 4 million acre feet on that high end of what um, Commissioner Tootin asked for, in 2021, we didn't even use that across four basin states, the upper basin states. And so um, a cut like, like that would just not be possible. But we can make little differences. We can um, be a part of the solution. We're going to be a part of the solution. Um, I, I see us having some proportion of um, the solution. So is your sense that the federal government is asking too much of states like Colorado? They are not asking too much of any of us. What they're doing is asking for all of us to be a part of this. And so the only way that we are going to do that is if we all do this together. Um, and so while our uses may be less and um, and we may not have as much to give, that doesn't mean that um, we we don't have to be a part of the solution. Um, we just there's no way possible that we can we can be the biggest piece of the solution. We really have to look where the uses are. What kind of water uses will be most affected in Colorado? I think all water uses are going to be affected, whether you are municipal, whether you are agriculture, whether you are a recreationalist, whether you are an environmentalist, everyone is affected. And therefore, we're going to have to look at everything, what um, municipal and agriculture. 
So just a few examples. Can you give me a few examples? I, I think we could look at innovation across agriculture and, and see if there's uh, ways to more efficiently use our water, not just in Colorado, but across the entire Western states. Um, and also, I think we should always be looking at ways that um, as water users, are we most efficiently using our water? And that's on the municipal side. And then there's also industry um, in their own processes. Is there ways to cut back? And let's break this down a bit. Most water in Colorado and in the Colorado River Basin is used by agriculture. Um, Should farmers and ranchers be expected to make the most cuts when we talk about this plan? It is important to recognize how much water goes into agriculture. And it's also important to recognize the benefits of agriculture at the same time. When we talk about which states should be or which areas of the basin we should focus on most with the solution, I think we do have to look at agriculture. And you mentioned municipalities. A lot of what we're talking about are cuts that a majority of us may not feel immediately. Or I guess I should ask, at what point will Coloradans generally feel the impact of cuts? I'm thinking about our ability to take showers, water our lawns. In our big metropolitan areas, we are already in watering restrictions or timing restrictions or days of the week restrictions. Those may get ramped up. And of course, first and foremost, you look at outdoor water use um, before you would look at indoor water use. But we do have a benefit here in Colorado that our norm is very efficient uh, and we're we are operating in an area that uh, we're, we're careful stewards of our water. So if the states don't come up with a plan, I understand, um, or if the plan doesn't work, the commissioner of the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation said they'll step in. What happens if the states fail and the feds have to come in and make the cuts? I think the reason this part of um, the feds' involvement is so concerning is that we have this long history in the Colorado River Basin of working collaboratively within um, our basin states alongside of the federal partners. And so and and do that within our existing legal and regulatory framework. It, the nervousness of that changing, um, there's so much uncertainty with that. The Currently, the Secretary of the Interior is the water master in the lower basin states. So she operates as kind of the controlling factor there. The authority by the federal government is quite limited in the upper basin because of the way the system is set up with Lake Powell and Mead. And so the concern is far more focused, I think, in the lower basin states, but obviously we all need to be a part of this. Colorado was looking into the idea of paying farmers and ranchers to volunteer to not use their water, and that means the water would stay in the river. I understand the state paused that effort a few months ago. Why did Colorado do that? We have been working in Colorado on the study of that program for approximately three years. We had moved very quickly on it, but there are also other studies happening in the other upper basin states in Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico, along with the um, Upper Colorado River Commission, which is the commission that pulls those four upper basin states together. So there's a study that we're waiting on from them to kind of look at it in a more holistic way across the four upper basin states. And so really it was not a pause to say this is not um, 
a, a potential solution, but it was a pause to say, hey, let's look within Colorado. How do we do drought resiliency on a local level and really focus uh, on, on that at this point? And when the, the larger, more holistic study is completed, we can look and see if that's something that is feasible for Colorado. How has Colorado's relationship with states in the lower basin changed over all of this? Has the federal government's threat of cuts changed that relationship? I would say no at this point. These are difficult times. However, everyone recognizes we're going to have to work together, stand together. Everyone is being called to action. So could additional stressors and tensions affect that? Most definitely. So that's not to say relationships are perfect, but we do realize that we have to be in this together. Do you think it's even possible to create this plan in 60 days? That is to cut two to four million acre feet of water usage in the Colorado River Basin. I think that's where Colorado and the upper basin states can be helpful. In the upper basin states, we are using what Mother Nature provides in that current year. Our folks on the ground in Colorado and across Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah make real-time decisions based on the availability of water. When we look at the water that is delivered to Lakes Powell and Mead, there's a level of certainty with what's in there. Not only are they able to use what goes in there that year, but oftentimes on years where there is shortage or less water going in, they're able to use that storage and kind of equalize their numbers. We don't have that benefit in the upper basin. I think we can be helpful and and really showcase the way that we've done that, the impacts, but also how we've recovered from that or how we're still dealing with issues. If Colorado has to make more cuts, and as you say, Colorado's already made so many, what are your fears about the future if Colorado's forced to kind of cut into bone, so to speak? It's the reason why I do what I do, because the impact from cuts on top of the cuts that we have already made, I think will be exponentially greater. When we look at the cuts that that farmers are making on the ground or um, communities or counties are making when um, areas like the Gunnison Basin, when Blue Mesa uh, dropped and and they had to close their boat ramps uh, early before the Labor Day holiday and the impacts that that had on the local economy. Recovery from that becomes more and more difficult as these cuts go deeper and deeper. So what our local economies look like, what are our local farms and ranches look like, what our small towns look like. I My biggest concern is that those will be impacted in a way that we cannot recover from. Becky, thanks so much. No, thank you. I really appreciate being here. Becky Mitchell is the commissioner of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. When we come back, the outlook for rain and severe weather this summer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. A century ago, Colorado's economy depended upon the sugar beet, a white root vegetable related to red table beets. At the peak of Colorado's sugar rush, as many as 24 refineries around the state beat the beets into pure sucrose and helped reduce the country's dependence on foreign sugar cane. Even the beet byproducts proved valuable. 
Leftover beet pulp, fattened livestock. Ingredient eaten, beet syrup, sprayed onto dirt streets, made a surface as hard as asphalt. And some Coloradans dried and rolled sugar beet leaves for foul-smelling cigars. Today, only Fort Morgan's sugar refinery remains in operation, half a century after Americans embraced high-fructose corn syrup as their sweetener of choice. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. When it comes to climate and weather, it's hard to stump Denver 7 chief meteorologist Mike Nelson. He's been a TV forecaster since before there were computers in forecasting. But this time in our regular conversation, I'm going to start by trying to stump him. Mike, are you game? I absolutely am, Ryan. Give it a shot. (laughs) Okay. I noticed that the National Weather Service used the term monsoon recently, and I wonder if you know where that word comes from. Well, I know it's a seasonal wind, and the more typical monsoon that we often talk about is the Indian monsoon off of uh, India and the Himalaya. And that is a wind shift that's either onshore or offshore and brings the very heavy rains that they experience. That's right. So this is a a word that originates out of this Indian Ocean phenomenon. Apparently, and I'll confess, I didn't know this either. Uh, The word monsoon is from the Arabic word masam, meaning season of winds. So we've learned something together, Mike Nelson. Well, Ryan, I always learn so much from CPR, so thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. And and more importantly, uh, have we seen monsoon activity? Do we expect to see that sort of activity this year? Actually, we're seeing it just beginning now, and typically what they watch for is down in Phoenix. If they get three straight days where the dew point, which is the temperature that it would have to fall for the humidity to be 100%, the dew point to be 55 degrees or higher in Phoenix. They assume that the monsoon has begun for Arizona. And then it's just a matter of time before that moisture continues to flow up across New Mexico and southeastern Utah into Colorado. Whoa. So they've seen that? They have seen that already. Yes, they've been getting some daily thunderstorms down in Arizona. Why don't we talk about wildfires for just a bit? Because, Chris, every time there is moisture. We thank our lucky stars. But, you know, the effects of wildfires don't end when the fire's out. And even as we cross our fingers for rain, people in burn scars are also bracing themselves. Talk about why. When we get a big rain on an area that has been burned the year before, there's nothing to hold back that soil from eroding quickly. And so we get these debris flows. It's not only rain, it's mud and it's full of big tree stumps, very dangerous. And we will see that for years to come in places like the East Troublesome Fire or the Cameron Peak Fire burn scars. Goodness. And and that could last for like up to a decade. We still worry about it down in Waldo Canyon. It's been 10 years since that fire down to the west of Colorado Springs. So that becomes uh, something you're mindful of when you're forecasting then around precipitation. Indeed. And the emergency managers actually have protocols set up so they know where these debris flows may occur. And if they get heavy rain over a certain area, they may actually issue a warning ahead of time for people to evacuate because it takes just seconds for these debris flows to come in. That's interesting. It's not just the water. It's the tree stumps that might be yeah, cut up in it. Yeah. 
Uh, in what other ways is Colorado vulnerable to flash floods? Well, we certainly had the terrible floods back in the Boulder area back in 2013. And that was because of an unusual heavy rain in September, which is usually a month I tell everybody to plan their wedding <laughs> because the weather's the best of the whole year. But that time we had a stationary weather front that stalled and dropped a year's worth of moisture in some areas in just two or three days. I wonder what you made of the catastrophic floods further west in Yellowstone. The Yellowstone floods were a function of, we talk about these atmospheric rivers more often in the winter season than in the summer, but we had a flow of moisture coming in off of the Pacific Ocean, just hammering the Pacific Northwest with heavy rain. And some of that moved all the way across Idaho into Montana and dropped heavy rainfall at a time that they also had their spring snow melt going on. So it was a one-two punch that really caused catastrophic flooding in that area. What was the term you used? Atmospheric rivers? Correct. That is a flow. Think of it almost like a real river that would be full of water on the surface, except it's in the atmosphere, a flow of jet stream winds coming in that are just like a fire hose dumping water in from the Pacific Ocean onto the Pacific Northwest, in this case, into uh, Yellowstone National Park. We get them along the West Coast periodically, and this one happened to occur just at the time of peak snowmelt. It's like a pipeline in the sky. Yes. Okay, summer I think of as severe weather season in Colorado, and on that list are thunderstorms, lightning, tornadoes, hail, mega rain, floods. Why are we prone to summer all of those? Well, our typical peak season for tornadoes is the month of June. We haven't had a lot of them this year because it's been a fairly warm, dry June. And so we haven't had enough moisture in the soil to really fuel the big thunderstorm. It's been a couple of rounds of them, but not a really bad outbreak. That's because in the early part of the spring into summer season, early June, jet stream winds aloft are still pretty strong over the United States. They gradually migrate farther north as the season gets hotter into July and August. When we have strong winds aloft, that gives us a lot of what we call shear in the atmosphere from mm. the winds at the surface versus the winds up where the jet aircraft fly. And that can cause rotation, which can cause thunderstorms that spin. We call them supercells. Spinning thunderstorms often lead to tornadoes down here on the ground. So all that activity is happening up where the planes fly. Yes, they do fly, and even higher, uh, anywhere from 30,000 to 60,000 feet, these big rotating thunderstorms. And I often wonder what native peoples and pioneers thought of these things, because they look like alien spacecraft when they're spinning around up into the sky and they're dropping large hail and producing intense lightning and tornadoes at times. I'm thinking more than one pioneer came out here and went, mm, maybe we should have stayed back in Chicago. Uh, are you expecting then less severe weather overall this summer? As we get later into the summer, mostly into July, the uh -huh. winds aloft get lighter because the stronger winds tend to be up near the U.S.-Canadian border. We get slower moving thunderstorms. They still produce a lot of lightning. They produce heavy rain, and that becomes more of a threat, the heavy rain, uh -huh. the lightning, than the large hail and tornadoes that we see in June. Okay. Well, I suppose it's not exactly off topic, but we are not in some kind of tornado-rific season. I do think, though, of a book you wrote years ago in which I learned that the Palmer Divide actually has a role in the formation of twisters. Do you remember writing that? I do. I do. And it's something called the Denver Cyclone. 
which would be a great name for a sports team, but I guess we don't have any new sports teams coming into town. <laughs> the Palmer Divide, Monument Hill, that is, when we have a wind blowing at the surface from the southeast, as that air comes up and over the Palmer Divide and down into the Denver area, into the South Platte River Basin, it tends to turn a little bit toward the west. And that creates a convergence zone because we have westerly winds aloft coming off the mountains and we have kind of a easterly wind at the surface. And so that air comes together. The air can't go into the ground. It's forced to rise and you get a line of thunderstorms that will often develop from just around Castle Rock through Aurora over DIA and up toward Keensburg and Roggin up in Wells County. It's called the Denver Cyclone or the Denver vorticity convergence zone, which is a mouthful. But what it means is we can get thunderstorms that spin and we can get tornadoes that form along that line from Castle Rock to Aurora to DIA up to Keensburg. Oh, and I'm glad you mentioned Roggin. No one talks about Roggin enough. Uh, no. <laughs> a, a sweet town um, on the plains. Uh, I remember driving through there on my way from La Junta to Fort Morgan. Uh, Our climate and environment reporter, Michael Elizabeth Sackis, reports that the Federal Bureau of Reclamation has told Colorado River Basin states that they've got to drop emergency plans to stop using between two and four million acre feet of water in the next year. It's a big cut. And if the states don't do that, the agency will use its authority to make the cuts itself. Sounds a bit ominous. I wonder, as a meteorologist who's very candid about climate change, do you see it as your role to tell people to conserve water? Oh, I think so. It is also my role to teach people about the true science of climate change. There's nothing political about this. It's just thermodynamics. If you add heat to the atmosphere, the world is going to get warmer. And so when we burn gasoline in a car, coal in a power plant, we put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Those little tiny molecules of carbon dioxide vibrate when heat goes through them that would be going normally out into space, redirected back down to the earth. And so we're not putting as much heat back out That causes the temperature to rise. Now, here's the key thing. We not only are in the midst of a tremendous drought, one of the longest that we've had in my lifetime across the Southwest, but remember, drought is not just precipitation. It's also evaporation. So as it gets warmer across the West, even with the same amount of precipitation, you will have more drought because you're getting a greater amount of evaporation. And you can see evaporation in reservoirs and in rivers, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've flown over Lake Powell and Lake Mead recently, and it's stunning. I mean, Lake Powell almost just looks like the Colorado River again. Just a little flotsam and jetsam before we go. The weather radar, known as KGJX in Grand Junction, is apparently down for maintenance until early July. How much do TV meteorologists rely on their own equipment, you know, Doppler 3000, Uh, Versus that like sort of government infrastructure. Well, it used to be back in the 80s and 90s, they had what we called the Doppler Wars, where every TV (laughs) station would have their own Doppler. And my Doppler is bigger than your Doppler, and my (laughs) Doppler can beat up your Doppler, etc. A lot of promotion done on all those. Lived through all of that. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, all of the Denver TV stations use the same Doppler radar from the National Weather Service. We do not have our own Dopplers. And I'll give you another little bit of a tidbit that people don't realize. We all have just one helicopter that we share. Does that mean you retired a lot of copters and Dopplers? 
yes, because their Doppler radars are expensive. They're a half a million to a million dollars a piece. They have all kinds of requirements because they blow out a lot of uh, radiation from them, microwave radiation. So you got to site them properly and you have to maintain them. And it was just a lot easier. Just use the very reliable uh, radars that the National Weather Service has. So we actually combine them all together, Cheyenne and Pueblo and Goodland and Denver and Grand Junction. And the entire thing is just a montage of radars all put together. It works very well, huh. and it does what we need to do. Same thing with a helicopter. Rather than having four helicopters flying around the same fire, each one 90 degrees apart and flying a circle, there's just one that takes the pictures. If we start a band, Mike, we're going to call it Copters and Dopplers, okay? I love it. <laughs> okay. Thanks for talking to us. We'll see you next month. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson talking with Ryan Warner. They chat monthly about the intersection between weather and climate in Colorado. If you're heading out on vacation this summer or just need an escape, we have some ideas for summer reading. Jeannie Costello is general manager and book buyer at Maria's Bookshop in Durango. Deidre Oppohans is co-owner of The Red Queen in Lafayette. They each pick some favorites, all with Colorado or Western ties. Deidre, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. And Jeannie, welcome to you. Thank you. Deirdre, let's start with some of the books that you picked. Uh, for me, summer reading's all about reading novels. You brought one that's historical fiction. It's called The Cape Doctor. It's by E.J. Levy, a Colorado author. Tell us about this one. Sure. So The Cape Doctor is inspired by the fascinating real life of a 19th century doctor. And it recounts the story of how a young girl from Cork, Ireland, reinvents herself as a boy so that she can attend medical school. And after experiencing all the freedom of the era that she can uh, have as a man, she continues this so-called masquerade, but she continues her life as a man, and she's incredibly successful. She's a physician, and it's just a fascinating story, especially since it is more than just inspired by a real-life story. It is really a fictionalization of a real person. And this character, this man, is then accused of homosexuality, and it puts their life in jeopardy. So it's a beautiful first-person account, and it's beautifully written. It's clearly a work of historical fiction, but the character is assertive and driven and deeply reflective. And that allows E.J. Levy to explore issues of female identity and the links to which women have gone to, you know, live the, on their own terms. And as an aside, uh, this actually won the 2022 Colorado Book Award for Best Historical Fiction. That's The Cape Doctor by E.J. Levy. And Jeannie, you picked another novel that falls into the category of historical fiction, too. It's called Woman of Light by Kali Fajardo Anstein. The author lives in Denver. Tell us about this book. Um, yes, uh, I chose this book because I thought it was a really new look into the history of Colorado. We're um, accustomed to sort of that traditional white post-settler narrative and Kali Fajardo Einstein has given us sort of a five-generation um, story of the indigenous Chicano family, starting with the lost territories of 
northern New Mexico and coming up through my region in southwest Colorado, migrating through San Luis Valley up to North Denver, where we start with our main character, Luz. And she's um, a young woman who she and her brother are trying to get by in in the 1930s in Denver. He is accused of fraternizing with a young white woman, is chased out of town by a mob, an angry mob. And so she's sort of on her own in the community. She's also a seer, and she takes us back into seeing sort of the the roots of her family, um, starting with that northern New Mexico connection. It's really a rich story. These are the stories that um, Kali had grown up with, sitting around the kitchen table. So it tells a lot of stories in her family and sharing just a kind of a real history in Colorado. And we actually interviewed uh, Kali recently. It will air on Colorado Matters. And there she talked about Luce and her special gift as a seer. Luce, throughout the book, she starts by reading tea leaves. And she's pretty good at reading tea leaves. Sometimes she sees things more than she would like. So the opening of the novel is set at a fairgrounds over by the Platte River, and Luce is reading tea leaves, and she's seeing further into people's lives and their personal lives than they would like to know. But as Luce goes on throughout the story, she actually starts having visions. And these visions are fully immersive, and they're taking over her life in some ways. Um, So there are a lot of sections of this book where you're, you're thrown into the 1860s, you're suddenly in a Wild West show, you're seeing people get attacked by bears, you're meeting sharpshooters, and all of that is coming through Luce's gift. Okay, that's Kali Fajardo-Anstein talking about her new book, Woman of Light. And Deirdre, back to you for one of your picks for summer reading. It's a biography called Fox and I by Catherine Raven. And the author is a former Montana park ranger. What's this book about? So Fox and I is a beautiful story of friendship and solitude and the realities of the wilderness. It's coming out in paperback at the end of the month, and it's a nonfiction book for those who are looking to reflect on our interconnectedness with nature. Technically, it's a biography, but we find it in the store uh, better suited to our nature and earth section because it really appeals to uh, readers of wildlife and nature nonfiction. The author is a botanist, a biologist, and a teacher, and she uses the scientific names of flora and fauna of the Rocky Mountains a lot. And uh, I like that. Some people, you know, may find that a little too technical, but I I found that I was um, learning a lot while I was reading it. Her writing about the wilderness, it made me want to be out there. It made me want to be alone and quiet and observing. So I learned a lot and I thought a lot. That's Fox and I by Catherine Raven. And Jeannie, you recommend a nonfiction book by Colorado author Craig Childs. It's called Tracing Time. And tell us about that. Great. So Tracing Time is um, Craig Childs had a decades-long love affair with the Colorado Plateau. And he he's out there continuously. And this particular one focuses on the mystery of the rock art that's out there in the plateau you know, connecting it, seeing it. He really is immersively observing what is it like to be there in its presence. He notices the time of day, how the light hits the um, rock art. And it's really a thoughtful way of connecting to the land and the experience, both observing 
There's a lot of wonder. He does uh, talk to a lot of indigenous folks about meaningfulness without without trying to be interpretive, without trying to be authoritative, but really trying to be curious and to share just that experience out there on the ground. So another book about the natural world, it's called Tracing Time by author Craig Childs. And Deirdre, your next recommendation sounds like a great summer read. It's a mystery thriller called The Dead Husband by Carter Wilson, who lives in Erie, Colorado. Tell us about this one. So The Dead Husband is a story of deception for fans of psychological thrillers. It's a standalone book. It's not part of a series, which I really like to recommend for summer reads because, you know, you don't have to jump in at number 23. Mm -hmm. So in this book, uh, it's a story about Rose Yates. And 20 years ago, an unspeakable tragedy rocked her small, affluent hometown. Only Rose and her family know the truth about what happened. Haunted by guilt, Rose escapes into a new life, and she now seems to have it all. She has a marriage, a son, a career as an author of mystery thrillers, which I also like. Then her husband's found dead. So she has to return to her childhood home and finally confront the past if she and her son are going to have a future. So that's the synopsis, but it's told from two alternating points of view, that of Rose and the detective investigating her, Colin Pearson. So this book, it could have some triggers for a few people. There's, there's some depression in it. There's some struggle um, and anxiety that Rose goes through in the wake of her husband's death. But I found it really relatable. I, I identified with it. I felt like I would feel similarly. It's dark, it's disturbing, and in one word, it's gripping. Okay, that's The Dead Husband by Carter Wilson. And Deirdre, you also have a book for kids 8 to 12 years old. Tell us about Ham Helsing, Vampire Hunter. The author is Rich Moyer of Denver. Yes. So this is a great graphic novel. Graphic novels get a lot of, you know, criticism and, you know, they're still looked down upon a little bit. And I get that. I really do. Uh, This graphic novel, however, is utterly charming. Ham Helsing is a pig. He isn't like the rest of his family. He doesn't want to join the family business of vampire hunting. And as you might imagine, uh, circumstances force him into the job. So he must embark on a perilous journey when he discovers that people are not always what they seem. It's hilarious. It's sweet. The illustrations are wonderful. They're beautiful, and they're very reminiscent of older Warner Brothers cartoons, I thought. And uh, book two, Ham Helsing, Monster Hunter, was just published two weeks ago. So Ham continues his adventures at summer camp. But it's a great read, and it's great for kids of all ages. It's definitely sweet and charming. What about for adults? I think you'd find it funny, too. It's very funny. It's very, very funny. And, and because the artwork is so appealing, I think it appeals to a broader range of, of people. Ham Helsing, Vampire Hunter. The author is Rich Moyer. Finally, a couple more books for younger readers. Jeannie, you have two. The first is by Will Hobbs, who lives in Durango in your neck of the woods. The book is called City of Gold. It's been out for a while and came out in paperback, I believe, more recently. What's this book about? Right. So City of Gold is um, it's a really great, it's another historical fiction. Uh, 15-year-old Owen has uh, just moved with his younger brother, who's 10, and his mother to our neck of the woods, Hermosa, Colorado. 
and they brought with them their pack of mules. And this is how they will make a living as farmers. But in the middle of the night, an outlaw steals the mules and takes them to the city of gold, which is Telluride, um, where the mules are used in the mining operations there. So this begins this amazing journey of you know, tracking the outlaws and going into the um, mining community and learning more about that. Um, he ends up pairing up with a local sheriff and his impudent younger brother who has managed to follow him to Telluride and they have to chase the, the wild bunch, the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They have to find their hideout where they finally locate their mules. And it's really immersed in, in place. It's really immersed in historical information and detail. And it's a high adventure. It's really fun. And that's for kids 10 years and older. That's City of Gold by Will Hobbs. Jeannie, your other book for younger readers is called Slow Down Tumbleweed by Boulder author Haven Iverson. Uh, Why did you pick this one? You know, I picked it because um, I was really attracted by how beautiful the drawings are, the illustrations by Robert Saya Jr., And it's also got a really great story, like Mabel is this tumbleweed who just goes, goes, goes everywhere, and she's excited to be on the move, and she feels very sorry for the rooted plants out there. Then one day, she's actually stuck in a a fence and in a barnyard, and she's really sad, and she's a little stressed out by it. And then when she gets over her fear of just being stuck in one place, she starts to see things she never noticed before. The beautiful sunset, there's gorgeous sounds in the wind, um, just the detail of the world when you just stop for a minute uh, and notice the world around you. So it's a great message. It's beautifully illustrated. Uh, it's lots of fun. So that's Slow Down Tumbleweed by Boulder author Haven Iverson. Thanks to you both for being here. Thank you so much, Andrea. Yeah, thank you. Deidre Oppelhans is co-owner of The Red Queen in Lafayette. Jeannie Costello is general manager and book buyer at Maria's Bookshop in Durango. We've been getting their recommendations for books to read this summer, or really any time. I'll have Colorado or Western ties. We'll post the books at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the entire Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.